You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Well, good morning, everybody. As you can tell by the absence of a sweet Russian mustache on my face, I am not Dr. Joe Kirkendall. Dr. Joe apparently is on an adventure somewhere. He may be in the Netherlands or in Antarctica, or he might just be at a Starbucks somewhere. But he is not here, and so therefore I am here. I'm Greg Hampton. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Church. I get to uh, organize groups. How many of you guys are in a mill group? Um, I had nothing to do with that. Um, that, was, that was all Aaron Wagner, and now it's going to be Adam Molesky. And um, I thought I would, I would wear my professor garb today so that I would at least look a little bit like I was supposed to be here teaching you something. Um, but, you know, it's, I, I do feel the weight of following Dr. Joe Kirkendall, so if you can offer me a little bit of grace, that would be pretty awesome. So little laughs like that. Somebody's trying to sabotage me in the back. Um, but yeah, if you could just throw in random fits of laughter in places, whether they belong there or not, that will help me feel a lot better. And plus, I know that you guys are used to laughing a lot, either with or at Joe. So I, I would appreciate that. So you guys talked about what last week? Justification, sanctification, all that jazz? Yes, no? All right, so how many of you guys walked out of that feeling like you understood what justification was, what sanctification was, and all that? Show of hands, yes? Who, who left kind of feeling like Joe left it up for me to figure it out on my own? Anyone? Okay. Well, my aim today, we're going to talk about um, something that can be a sensitive subject. We're going to talk about original sin today. And I'm not talking about the movie that had Angelina Jolie and um, that, that was an awkward movie. But, and actually had almost nothing to do with original sin. Um, but we're going to talk about the original sin that has therefore condemned all of us to hell without the love of Jesus. And so that can be a little bit awkward because you have to ask the question, well, where did it come from? And if it came from there, why am I responsible for that? And if you're responsible for it at all, you, you kind of have to say, well, why am I stuck with that? And what do I need to do in order to get rid of it? And you might even sit on the side of the road where you say that you're not responsible for it and that you don't have it. And um, those questions and those thoughts would not be new questions or new thoughts. Uh, you guys have heard of councils, councils of Nicaea, of of all these different things. There's actually a Council of Orange. I thought about bringing a bag of oranges, but I thought that would just be stretching. And so all these different councils had these discussions about, well, what do we really believe as Christians? All right, so was Jesus really fully God, fully man? Was Jesus this? Did Jesus really die? Uh, is there heaven? Is there hell? And is there sin? And if there is sin, then what kind of sin is there? And I have to be honest with you guys, I'm really resisting making like KFC jokes about sin and original sin. I want to say something about there being an extra crispy version of sin, but I know that that isn't actually funny, so I'm just confessing that to you, that, that I'm very tempted. 
So if there's small little pauses every once in a while, it's because I'm thinking of something in my head that I'm trying to decide whether to say or not. Um, so just hang in there with me. All right, so, but let's do something that um, the church has also always done as they gather, and let's just take a moment and let's pray um, as we get together. God, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you've given us minds to use to think, um, to pursue who you are, not just with emotion. And you've got to pray that um, today not necessarily be about clarity of an issue as much as it is seeking you in an issue. And so whatever gets said, whatever we discuss, I pray that you are honored by it and that it's uh, beneficial and that it brings glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I know that you guys, as you hang out with your friends, probably the question that you get asked most often by someone that doesn't believe in God is they probably say, so why do I need the blood of Jesus, right? That's what all of your friends ask you all the time. They're just like, man, I've just been thinking, why do I need the blood of Jesus? And... By a show of hands, how many have ever actually had someone ask you that actual question? Nobody has ever asked you, why do I need the blood of Jesus? Do you know why no one has ever asked you, why do I need the blood of Jesus? Because it's weird. It's weird that we need the blood of Jesus. It's kind of awkward that, that we as Christians, we say, hey, what makes you clean? Blood, blood makes me clean. The blood of Jesus makes me clean. And that is a little weird, so people aren't going to ask you. If someone is going to ask you about Jesus at all, they're going to say, hey, who's that Jesus guy? Or, hey, I noticed you did this. Why did you do that? And then you get to connect it to the idea that you believe in Jesus. But not often is someone going to sit around and say, hey, why do I need the blood of Jesus? But isn't that really what we're trying to tell everybody? If, if they need to be forgiven of sin, right, and we believe that the blood of Jesus is what forgives that sin and covers that sin, then really what we're talking about, we're trying to answer a question that nobody is asking. But it's such an important question that we're trying to answer it even though they're not asking it. So as you're sitting there and someone says, you know, hey, I noticed you did that, or hey, you go to church. What I want you to do from this point on, as someone asks you, hey, why do you go to church? Or hey, why did you do that? If it at all relates to the idea that you believe in Jesus, the question that they're really asking you is why would I need the blood of Jesus? All right, so why do we need the blood of Jesus? Just toss out answers. Why do we need the blood of Jesus? What about 323? At 323? Romans 323, which says, for all of sin, all right, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. All right, what else? So we've, we've all sinned. Why, what else do we need the blood of Jesus for? Atonement. That is a really big word, atonement. What else do we need the blood of Jesus for? Anything? Say again? Yeah, to, to repair uh, something that's broken or missing between us and the Father. Yeah, I mean, but the most, most absolute basic answer, right, is sin. We have sin, and for some reason we believe that Jesus' blood forgives that sin. So when I was a kid... Um, I grew up, my mom was a Christian, my dad wasn't. And so I was at church all the time, and we would come home on Sunday morning, and my dad would be playing his, uh, his Woodstock albums and 
Uriah's Heep and, and all Jimi Hendrix and all this stuff. And, and so my mom, you know, would, would want me to do things, as many Christian things as possible, I think, because, you know, she knew that I was living in kind of a house that had a little bit of both going on. And so one summer, she sent me and my, my friend Adam, who lived down the street, uh, to VBS. Adam lived in a divorced home. I was the only kid in my na- entire neighborhood that had both my mother and my father, you know, even though my mom was a Christian, my dad wasn't. And... So me and Adam, we go to the VBS, and, and Adam, you know, he's living with his mom. His mom's been married multiple times. And if I'm completely honest, I, I got in a lot of trouble with Adam. I, I, I did a lot of things that my mom still doesn't know about with Adam. And I think it's rather funny that, that I have a story about Adam as I'm talking about original sin. But, but Adam was kind of like my only neighborhood friend I had. He was the only kid my age from my neighborhood to go to this VBS at, at a church that happened to be called New Life. It was called New Life Fellowship. And they have a moment, you know, one of those moments where they ask all of us kids, you know, like, if you want to accept Jesus, do you want to be saved? And so I, I had already done that, but for whatever reason, I felt like I needed to do it again. So I raised my hand, and, and, I look, and Adam has raised his hand. And so like any good evangelical thing. They take everyone that raised their hand off into another room so they can talk to you and make sure you know what it is that you're doing. So I'm kind of excited now because I was like the only Christian kid that lived in my neighborhood. And now I was thinking, all right, now, now me and Adam, can, we can save our neighborhood together. Like we can, we can save everybody. And so I, I get back to Adam's house and we go to the back door and this is kind of a funny part of this. I don't understand why we did this, but we got to his house, and even though it was his house, we knocked on the door. So we get to the back door, we knock on his door, and his mother comes to the door, and, and she opens the door, and I go, great news. And she goes, what, what, what? I go, Adam got saved. And she, she looks at me, and Adam's standing right next to me. And, and she goes, saved from What? And I, in all honesty, in my whatever I was, second grade mind, I didn't know what to say. I had no idea. I, I just said, I, I don't know. Yeah, he saved. And, and, uh, and that's all I remember. And, and Adam, you know, to this, to this day, he doesn't live his life for Christ. Because in large part, a lot of us, no people or even a lot of us went through this where we got saved from something that we didn't know we were being saved from. We, we're asking questions that we don't know what they really are. Our friends, our non-believing friends are asking questions that have not yet been connected to the real question that they're asking. And, and Adam and I both needed the blood of Christ to forgive us of our sins, Right? But we didn't know that that was the question that we were asking. We didn't know that that was what was really important. Now what comes along with this question of original sin, this idea that we have sin or that we are sinners, is it how do you prove that everyone is sinful? How do you prove that everyone is sinful? If if we as Christians have this overarching idea that everyone is sinful, therefore everybody needs the blood of Jesus how do you prove that? 
Anybody have any ideas they want to shout out? How do you prove that everybody is sinful? Say in. Law? So having laws proves that everybody's sinful? What do you mean? Mosaic law. So you walk up to someone on the street and say, hey, I just want to let you know that because Abraham wrote down some stuff, you're sinful. All right? So how is that proof to anybody that they're sinful? The law reveals sin. Okay? And so what if you say to somebody, here's some of the laws that are in, in the Bible, and they go, well, I've never broken any of those. What, what if you're like the rich, rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And you say, hey, do this, do this, do this. You list off all the laws, and they say, I have obeyed those my entire life. What do you, then what do you do? Okay? All right, so what you're saying is that, all right, so maybe you've never physically committed something that maybe you thought this and therefore you're a sinner still. Right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I don't see any one-eyed people in this room. Anyone? Jesus said that if, if you lust with your eyes to gouge it out, right? Has anybody gouged out their eye lately? So we're all pretty perfect in here, aren't we? This is, I, love, I love speaking to perfect crowds because it, it really makes it easier. When it comes down to, okay, so there's two ways that you prove that everybody is sinful, right? You either prove it philosophically, right, which is this. This is philosophical, all right, because we're saying to someone, if you thought this, then you're sinful, okay? That's a philosophical idea. You're saying that even though you haven't actually done it, that you are sinful, or you prove it Practically, you, you prove it by looking at somebody and saying, all right, so even when you were a kid, you, you pulled away the master thing, you know, where, okay, when you were a kid, did you ever steal a pencil? You know, when, when you were a kid, did you ever hit your brother? You know, when you, when you did this, have you ever done this, have you ever done that? And so we prove it practically. Now, the, the hard thing is, is that, generally speaking, we want to say philosophically, absolutely, everybody is sinner. The problem is, is that, not everybody that you meet is going to agree with that. And then when you try to prove it practically, not everybody is A, going to believe that the things that you're listing as sins are sins, and B, they're going to be able to say to maybe 90%, if not all of the things that you mention, that they've never done those things. So then what happens? You jump back to the philosophical you jump back to, well, even if you've never done that, if you even thought it, then you're a sinner. So now we've got a bunch of philosophical sinners. We've got a bunch of people that maybe haven't actually done something, but we're condemning them because maybe they thought about doing it, right? So this, this becomes a problem for sin. And when you look at the Bible, I think this is the beauty about the Bible is that the Bible actually teaches both of these things. Okay, so the law teaches you, shows you what it is that you're doing wrong. That is practical. Practically speaking, when you make a mistake, sometimes, okay, Paul says, but I did not know that was sin, so it wasn't sin until I saw the law. I had a guy tell me once that he would uh, commute in Chicago quite a bit, and so there's lots of tollways 
and they weren't quite as advanced back then as they are now. You, you had to pull up to a ramp, pull out 35 cents and throw 35 cents into a very sophisticated plastic cone-shaped urinal kind of thing and, and then trust that, you know, that the top would come up so that you could drive through. Now what he would do is that he would drive up to those and he was smart enough to realize that a certain percentage of people you know, like a, a young boy in the bathroom, weren't good at getting it all into the cone. So he would open the door, look down on the ground, pick up change that was on the ground, and pay his toll with money that other people had left behind. Now, on one hand, you're thinking, that's brilliant. That, that's brilliant. Now, in order to do that today, we would literally have to steal someone's license plate off their car and put it on ours so that we could drive through and have somebody else build. But the reason he told me this was, he said, Greg, I did that, I did that for years until I found out that according to state law, that the property all around that toll booth belongs to the state and that any money that falls onto it belongs to the state. And, and he said, so what I realized was that all these years, I had been stealing from the state in order to pay my toll. And he said, and from that point on, I paid my own toll. He said, but it wasn't sin to me until I knew the law. So practically speaking, yeah, the law tells us that we are sinners. But then the Bible also does teach us philosophically speaking that we're all sinners. And the perfect example is what you brought up. That Jesus tells us that even the things that we think in our minds can be counted as sin against us. But I do think that people are naturally more comfortable with observational sin than they are with the idea of an original sin or a philosophical sin. Because I imagine that some of you guys have friends that if you told them that, man, if, if you didn't commit adultery, but if you just thought about it, that you're condemned, they'd be, they'd be kind of annoyed with you, right? I mean, that, if you told them, well, I know you didn't cheat on that test, but I remember you telling me you were thinking about cheating on that test. And so I'm going to tell the teacher that you cheated on your test. And they're going to go, but I didn't cheat on my test. And you're going to go, yes, you did. You thought about cheating on your test, so I'm telling the teacher you cheated on your test. That is literally what it is to tell someone that does not believe that they are a sinner, that does not believe in the idea that they need the blood, that does not believe in the idea that they need to be saved from something, that philosophically they thought about something and therefore they are a sinner. I, I would love for one of you to take that example literally and then tell me how it goes. Because I'm pretty sure that person will decide not to be your friend anymore. Okay, so then the other problem that comes up is the idea, if we have original sin... Doesn't it seem kind of unfair that it's almost like we were built to break? All right, so, so how many of you guys have a car that something has broken on your car? All right, look around. Okay. Now this class is, is, is this Sunday school is not meant to be a moment where we delve into uh, the theories about whether car companies make their products to break so that then you're forced to go have it fixed so that then you are forced eventually to have to buy another one. But let's just talk about that for a minute anyway. I had a Chevy S10 uh, when I was right out of college, and 
both handles broke off, not on the outside, but on the inside. So I, in order to recline my seat, like even an inch, I had to go into my garage and I had to get my vice grips. All right, so all the guys here love vice grips because they're the kind of tool that can do everything. And, and the ladies, by show of hands, how many ladies know what vice grips are? All right, I'm very proud of all of you. Round of applause for the ladies that know what vice grips are. And if you want to come up and, and ask us if we know what certain products that typically would only be known by women, then we will, we will equally be annoyed. So I had to use vice grips just to recline my seat like an inch or two. And, and I realized that I, I looked it up and I found out that really that year, that model, all Chevy S10s, had the little lever break off. Fast forward years later, my wife and I, uh, we're about to have our, our second baby, and we have, um, what, it, what was that? It was a 2000 town and country white minivan, and so it has sliding doors, right? And those sliding doors open are, are pretty key to the idea of getting in and out of a vehicle. Now, one of the handles just broke clean off, just clean off. You, you just pulled it, and you were holding the handle in your hand. And, and so there was one other handle still. There's still one door in the back that could be open. We already had uh, a small child that we had to get in and out. So we decided, well, we're going to switch from this side to that side. And, and because we looked into it, and just the handle, not to have it installed, not any of that, not to make sure that it matched and worked right, just the handle, $250. So now the other handle, I'm opening the other handle one day, and I open it, and I feel, you know, so those handles are, are built like, so they're, they're connected here, and then this side is what's pulling the mechanism to make the door actually open. So I pull it, and the front half breaks. And so this half is still connected. It can still open the door, right? So what do you think I did? I, I, just, I just put it back in as nicely as I could, and I made sure my wife knew, hey, when you open the door, you can only pull on this side of it. <laughs> and so we, we've just moved to Georgia, and I, the air conditioning goes out in that van, the air conditioning. That then I found out that was also, it was actually a recall on that vehicle that if your air conditioning went out before a certain amount of miles, they would fix it for you for free. I was on the other side of that mile marker, so it was not fixed for free. So my car is at the mechanic. We are in the hospital having a baby. And I get a call from the mechanic that for, for whatever reason, he had opened the side door to, get some, to check something in, in the back. And what do you think happened? He broke my handle. I was not happy. I was not happy at all. And... And so he was very kind, and he offered to install a new handle for me if I would purchase the handle. And I said, knowing really that I had probably, I broke the first half of the handle, I said, but you broke my handle. <laughs> so I looked into it again, and yet again found out that on this year in this model, that was yet another thing that was broken on everybody's town and country. 
You expect in this world the things that we make to break. You, you expect in a capitalistic environment where, where it's all about how cost-effective is it to do this or that for things to break. When, when Chrysler looked at their cars that, that were breaking, I guarantee you they did a cost analysis of how much would it cost for us to repair this as opposed to how much would it cost to just pay people to be quiet about it. It's true. How many of you guys have seen Fight Club? Right? They do... Wait, we don't talk about Fight Club. You, you, do, you do a cost analysis of if this breaks and people complain about it, how much damage will that do to our company as opposed to how much would it cost for us to actually fix it? In Adam's lifetime, the original Adam depending on what you believe about original Adam. He saw the world become so damaged, so broken, that God decided to do a complete recall, didn't He? When, when you read through the beginning of Genesis and you get to chapters 9, 10, and 11, where you start getting introduced to the other generations of Adam's family, you actually realize Adam died about 50 years before Noah was born. Adam saw every single generation of his family born and live and grow up except for Noah. Think about this. Adam and Eve through whom sin entered the world and therefore all people are sinful. He got to see the literal effect of what he had done completely destroy the creation. The same creation of which he had named every animal had been the source of every birth. He had to watch it completely be degraded to the point where God's cost analysis was that it was a total recall. Now imagine that the sin that we have in our life, that we don't really think about it that way, do we? But Adam did. Adam had to. Because Adam saw every generation of his family and of the world progressively get worse. And then you think about the sin that we commit. And the sin that for some reason and somehow is found in us. And think if you were able to live long enough to see seven and eight generations. How differently might we live? How could Adam possibly have gone through a single day without regretting what he had done? And so it gets to this place with Noah where there's a total recall. You guys, think in our culture, think of all the promises that we're given about what's unbreakable. I mean, every commercial we see on TV tells us that we can buy something that's better than the last that won't break. We're told that if you just buy a certain kind of OtterBox or this, that, or the other thing, that your phone won't break. But I imagine there's a certain percentage of people in here 
who has a smashed screen on their phone that had something protecting it at the time. They're all empty promises. The idea of being unbreakable. It's an empty promise. So whether it's philosophical or whether it's practical, I think that we've all probably come to the place where we believe that everybody is broken in some way. So, if the fact is that we are sinful, the next logical question is, is when do we as individuals become sinful? When do we as individuals become sinful? If we believe that sin is real, and if we believe that whether philosophically or practically that we will become a sinner, at what point do we become a sinner? This was actually a really big discussion between the church. I mean, there was two primary people that were leading the discussion. Some of you guys have probably heard of, of Augustine. Most of you, how many of you ever heard of Pelagius? Anyone? A couple of us have heard of Pelagius? Well, right around the 380 to 420 period, four, and eventually 430, it was decided once more. This was a big discussion. If we are sinners, at what point do we become sinners? And this may seem like a silly question to us because we're going, well, okay, so eventually everyone becomes a sinner. Why does it matter? Well, the reason that it matters is because if you become a sinner after you're born, that actually proposes the idea that if you are brought up in sterile enough of an environment that you could actually continue to be sinless, right? And if you could continue to be sinless, avoid making mistake, then what use is the blood of Jesus for you? And if you do not need the blood of Jesus because you have maintained sinlessness, then what is the point of saying that Jesus has come to love the whole world, to die for the whole world, to save all of humanity, to make all things right? But... If you believe that you become sinful before you're born, then somebody eventually is just going to ask you the question, does God just hate you? If you are born broken from the start that you should just be recalled, then doesn't God just hate us? He never gave us a shot at all. You're born and from your first breath you were never given the chance to do it right. Does that seem fair? That doesn't seem very fair, does it? And yet, as Christians, we've kind of just swallowed that, haven't we? We kind of accept pretty easily the idea that we're condemned from the first breath we take. And this is exactly what I wanted. Complete, e either dumbfoundment at the idea of what I'm saying Maybe even a little frustration that's building up in you and a question that maybe you hadn't thought about in a while. Because those are the two sides, guys. Either, either you stand on the side that there's the possibility that you could live sinless or you stand on the side that you were never given a chance. What does that do inside of you if you think about it that way? Now, as Christians, we believe that God is loving. 
So no matter what side you stand on, what you want to do is you want to filter those ideas through the idea that God is loving. That even if you were born from your first breath a sinner, that God provided a way. And even if you're on this side, believing that maybe you could go through life being sinless, that God is someone that sees through our pride and arrogance and is someone that calls us to a place of belief even though we spend a lot of time trying to fool ourselves into thinking that we can be perfect. I'm going to write some things on the board here. And as I write these things on the board, I want you to, just, I want you to think, do I believe that? Is that? Where do I fall on this, okay? Because when it comes down to it, 1,700 years ago, this is the conversation that they were having. And because of what they decided, it has gotten to the place where modern day, most of us as, as Christians don't think about this very much. And this is what I love about Joe, and this is what I love about Sunday school, is that he's bringing up theological ideas that a typical Christian probably does not think about. And what is true about us as human beings is the things that we believe the most are the things that we've had cognitive dissonance about. The things that we believe most strongly are the things that we've struggled with in our minds. And the things that we're most able to have a conversation with somebody else about are the things that we have thought about both sides about. All right, so here's, here are the two sides to this, all right? So either you believe that your freedom was lost by Adam or you believe that it is relinquished by us, okay? Either you believe that at the very beginning Adam sinned and so that somehow that's still a part of you or you believe that at some point after you're born you actually relinquish your perfection, okay? Okay, so on this side, you either sin because you're a sinner, right? Or on this side, we are sinners after we sin, right? So in other words, either you already are a sinner or you become a sinner. All right, on this side, Sin is inherited, right? Okay, so how many of you guys have naturally red hair? We got a couple gingers in the room. Naturally redheads, right? Okay. Did you guys know that scientists have already figured out what year that natural redheads will cease to exist? <laughs> All right, do you know why? You know why? Because red hair is a recessive trait. All right? Dark hair is a dominant trait, which means that if you scan this room, there are more people in this room that have dark hair than that have blonde hair and red hair probably put together. All right? So at a, at a certain point in the future, all the redheads and blondes that we see will not be natural blondes and redheads. Because it will not be genetically possible anymore unless people are so extremely specific with each other that my ginger friend here 
marries a girl who also has red hair, and that they force those, their family members to continue to do that, so on and so forth. And I have a red-headed son, right? Okay. All right, so either it's inherited, either sin is a part of your DNA and you inherit it, or you imitate it. All right? So I've got three sons. My third son, his name is Wallace. He's 18 months old, and lately he's been doing this. Now, do you think he inherited that? Or do you think he is imitating something he saw one of his other brothers do? Think about it. If this is a, is a sinful act on the part of my child to defy something that mom and dad say, is he imitating or did he inherit? Okay, on this side, infants born sinful, first breath, and on this side, you would believe somewhere around the age of becoming a toddler that you become a heathen. All right. So what I'm guessing here is that in this room, we probably have a majority that chooses one side or the other, but there's actually some of us that have picked pieces from both sides. Raise your hand if you picked pieces from both sides. Okay? You're all heretics. Okay? All right, this side, this side is supported by, if, by Augustine. Okay? This side would make you a Pelagian. This side, I'll get back to that. This side was actually condemned as a part of a number of different councils of the early church. All right, does anybody feel sheepish now? Does anybody feel like they're, they're worried that they might actually be a heretic? Anybody? <laughs> Why, right? Why? Why is this side condemned? This side is condemned because the early church decided that this side would teach that someone could live a life without the need for Jesus. If you take it for all that it is, this says that we could choose not to relinquish our freedom. We could choose not to become sinners. We could choose not to imitate. And we could do a good enough job of raising our children that they would not become sinners. This side tells us that while it's very sad that we lost it, that Christ has created a way for us to be found again, that while in many ways it kind of sucks that we sin because we are sinners, that there is a Holy Spirit that has been placed within us that we can choose whether to live by the Spirit or by the flesh. 
that even though we have inherited it, that we have a new inheritance that is Jesus Christ, that is his spirit, that is a new kingdom, that is a new body, and that is the ability that by the spirit to not sin. And that even though as infants, from the very first breath we take, we may be a sinner, that we get to be born again. That the first breath that we take is not the first breath of freedom that we have taken. But there is a greater and newer freedom that is offered to us by what? By the blood of Jesus. Now, for those of you who are heretics and did raise your hand, there is good news. After this is condemned, in the following years, you know, a lot of times you'd either be Augustinian or you would have been Pelagian. The good news is that there are levels that are accepted and acceptable that would be considered semi-Pelagian or semi-Augustinian. And it's the idea that, that even though you might believe that you are born sinless at the second that you're born, that it's impossible to resist the idea of sinning. That it is impossible to not imitate sin. That it's impossible to raise somebody in such a way that they would never, ever make a mistake. Now, the one other thing that is kind of interesting about the idea of sin and where it comes from is, is the question of where does our soul come from, okay? And, and this was a part of this conversation early on, okay? Because if you were, okay, so there's something called traducianism, okay? To be, be traducian, basically what you are saying is that the reason that you are sinful from the second you are born is because your soul is not actually created by God. Does that sound weird to anybody? Okay. There's three thoughts about where your soul comes from. Alright. God. God. Parents. Okay. The first idea is that God created every soul that ever would be at the same time that he created everything else. All right? So God created all the souls. He put them in a little soul bank somewhere. All these little, all of our little souls, all the little infant baby souls of your someday children are locked up in a nice little soul cocoon somewhere. And they're waiting to become butterflies. And at some point after a baby is conceived, God chooses to connect one of these souls from here to this new infant, okay? That's one idea. Another idea is that God creates a soul at the moment of conception or at some point while a baby is in the womb. If you are pro-life, you are likely to believe in this idea and that the very instance of conception is when God has chosen to create that soul and attach it to a fetus. 
Now, this is, these two get kind of lumped together as what's called creationism when it comes to where your soul comes from. Traducianism, all right, believes in the idea that just like the color of your hair or the strength of your muscles or the strength of your bones or, or this, that, or the other thing, just like that comes from the DNA of your parents, that your soul is actually a combination of your mother's soul and your father's soul. And since your mother and father have both sinned, therefore, when you are born with a combination of those souls creating yours, that is why you are sinful right away. So, of these three, which, which one? You, I mean, basically, you can lump these two together. So, of this and of that, which of these do you think that Augustine believed? Creationism or traducianism? So we, do most people think that Augustine would have believed creationism? You would be wrong. Do you want to know why you would be wrong? Augustine and those that believe in, in this side would have actually posited the idea that if you believe in this, you would be saying that God is creating something that isn't perfect. Because if you believe, like this says, that you are a sinner already, that from the second you are born that you're a sinner, but you also believe that God created your soul, then you're saying that God created something sinful. You're saying that God created something that was broken and put it inside something that was broken. But people that believe this in the early years would have believed this because then something that is broken is creating something that's broken and putting it inside something that's broken. My guess is that a lot of us are a little uncomfortable with the idea that our soul came from the combination of our mom and dad's soul. Am I right? Is that a little weird to think about? I mean, you're thinking about your mom right now. You're thinking about the mole on the back of her neck, about how you hope you never get that. And now you start thinking about all of her internal faults, all the things that you really hope never happened to you. And then someone says, hey, maybe your soul actually came from the combination of your mom and dad's soul. And you're like, no! How many of you guys feel more comfortable with one of these two? Show of hands. Nice and high. How many of you feel more comfortable with this? Show of hands. Nice and high. Two or three people. Yeah. You know what? Every time someone ever says to me that so-and-so or such-and-such -such person is a heretic, you know what I ask them? I ask this question. I say, how much heresy makes a heretic? How much heresy do you have to believe in order to be defined as a heretic? Because I think the majority of people would say this seems a little heretical, the idea that an eternal soul is actually created from the souls of two human beings. But 
in the year 421, it would have been less comfortable to believe the idea that God created a spirit that might have already been flawed from its creation. So, kind of where I think is a comfortable place to fall is the idea that God, whether at the beginning or right here, that God created a soul that was perfect. And that by being put into a broken body, that the perfectness of our soul becomes overwhelmed by the brokenness of our flesh. And the reality is, is that you can believe this, this, or this and not really be considered to be believing something that's wrong. Because when we read our Bible, this is not one of those simple subjects that is answered neatly and tightly and succinctly by three or four Scriptures like some other subjects that we talk about. And this subject also would fall outside of the area of a fundamental belief. Whether you believe where your soul came from here or from here or from here or that it's this with a little bit of this, that's not fundamental. But what is fundamental is that we do believe that everybody, everybody, our friends that are asking us why we go to church, our friends that say, hey, it was, it was really cool that you did that nice thing for somebody. That the question that is really being asked in all of this is why do I need the blood of Jesus? And I hope that today has been not quite as confusing as helpful. And I hope that this is a question that you guys will continue to ask with each other about what do you really believe about original sin? Where did it come from? Where do you really believe it came from? Did it come from Adam? Does it come from our DNA? Does it come from a soul that's created broken? Does it come from some combination of our parents' souls? Whatever your answer is, I hope that you'll come to a place where you believe it wholeheartedly. Because the things that we struggle with are the things that we're able to talk about most confidently. Amen? Amen. Alright guys, I'd intended on having some uh, table discussion stuff, but time got away from me. So I hope this was helpful. And, um, and uh, I think that hopefully Joe will be back next week and he can redeem any faults that I had. Alright? Alright guys, I'll see you guys later. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Mills Sunday School Podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.